Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, your host today on the Surgical Spirit Podcast. And today we welcome Ali Jaffrey. How are you, sir? Alhamdulillah, I'm really good. Thanks for having me. Well, um, Jaffrey is a very traditional Shia surname. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a funny story behind that. We're actually um, Ghazami, or I, I guess as you guys will call Musavi. Um, and my, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, our listeners are sort of not really shears. Could you sort of kind of elaborate? Oh, right. More? Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, um, shears tend to have, uh, take their names from the imams. So the 12 mm-hmm. imams, the seventh, uh, of those being Imam Musa al-Qazim. Um, so anybody from their descendant is called Qazimi. Uh, similarly, anyone from the sixth Imam, Imam Jafar Sadak's descendant is called Jafari. Now, in the Indo-Pak subcontinent, you know, that South Asian area, Jafari is considered almost safer than Kazumi because you have a lot of people who are not Muslim call themselves Jafari. So my father's uncle decided to change the name to Jafari to assimilate a bit more, even though we're we're from his son's lineage. Uh, but yeah, I guess you could you could you could still call 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 us Jafari. Yeah. So it's to stay safe, so to speak. Yeah, it was to stay safe, so um, avoid persecution. Or but I was still like I, I never bought that story. I was like, but Jafari is still very very she in its yeah. <laughs> you know it's understanding but you do get a lot of people in india called jafari and they're not they're not muslim so is, is this persecution from uh, muslims or non-muslims at the time um uh, at the time it's probably persecution from muslims more than non-muslims well, yeah 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 so it's yeah. sort of sunni muslim persecuting the minority shia muslim Yes, yeah, yeah. So there was, a, you know, like my family kind of had that uh, experience of of that. Uh, so now, but alhamdulillah, we're in UK now, so we're less than that. Well, we're still a minority, really, but but I guess uh, the UK, they're used to having minorities around. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so that's, that's a little bit of a fun fact behind my name. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so you are actually a Sayyid? That's right. Yes, and and you know, for the listeners out there who 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 are not Shias, you know, what does a Sayyid mean? So Sayyid is basically a descendant of uh, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wa uh, and and that's that you know that's basically it. So um, mm. my mum's line is Razawi, and my dad's line is Kazmi. So that's the ninth Imam from my mum's side, and then the seventh Imam from my father's side and obviously all the imams uh, are descendants of uh, prophet muhammad yeah. and, and did you feel a pressure on you you know being descendant of the prophet i think we definitely when we grew up it was like you know our mom would say um if um uh, if you do something wrong it's like two slaps rather than one slap because you know <laughs> 
you, you know, you should know better kind of thing. So yeah, definitely. We had very kind of religious upbringing um, and it was kind of, you know, the fact that uh, you need to serve the community, you need to kind of um, be very careful um, uh, was, was definitely, you know, it was, it was something, it was like a responsibility almost. We, we, we grew up in that, yeah, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, for, for, for me, uh, my mother is not from the uh, Sayyid side, but my dad is. <clears throat> so, you know, I've got, I guess, less pressure um, <laughs> than you. Um, Don't say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, it is, uh, you know, the upside is that you do get that uh, that sort of extra piece of chocolate and extra piece of biscuit uh, when you're in the community. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, you know, if you're old enough, they'll give you a seat um, <laughs> or, you know, a front seat. Yeah. Um, in the auditorium um, mm. but otherwise you know it was it was this sort of difficulty inside that you've got mm. so much responsibility at a young age as well because we have yeah. to start performing from such a young age yeah. and we kind of grow up a bit too quickly I mean that was that's what I felt is, is mm. I didn't really have a uh, you know like a silly childhood where I can just be silly and 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 uh just grow up as a child really i had to grow up very quickly yeah 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 certainly i can connect with you know expectations on you know um that parents bring bring up um and and yeah um it can can be difficult for not a child to be a child in that you know early early childhood stage definitely yeah where, where, where did you spend your childhood i grew up in pakistan so i was born in Rawalpindi. um so i was until uh it was 12 when i moved to england so before before that time it was all in pakistan Rawalpindi with my i'm the youngest of five um so so yeah with my sisters and you know kind of uh, cousins and so in Pakistan that's my childhood memories and and what do you remember of your childhood over in Pakistan um, um you know it's 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 funny because um I married my wife and my wife's been you know she's she's spent her life in Pakistan completely so um and i moved when i was 12 so whenever she mentions things to me like oh that thing and this thing and i just i have this really fond memory of oh yeah we used to you know really fond memories going back of um this is what we used to eat or this is what you know and we had that culture um and i have you know we were quite blessed alhamdulillah you know father had good job he had a stable job he was working um he had an even evening clinic he was a doctor he's a doctor he's retired now um and we had a good education he he uh, he spent all of his money so we could get private you know education there so uh we were quite sheltered in the f- uh sense that we didn't you know our 
school was so far away, we had to go on a van that would pick up at 7 a.m. in the morning and then pick everyone up, which would take one and a half hour. Then we would go to school and we would be the last people to be dropped off. So it was a long day, school day. Um, but my my mother especially, she was a high achiever in her studies and she made sure every one of us did really well in education, you know, pushed us. So, uh, so we had, yeah, what we mentioned earlier, we had the fact that, okay, you need to achieve, you need to do really well. Um, and there was that pressure, but I guess that pressure is a, an, a good sense, which kind of is helping us now. And, you know, kind of where all of my brothers and sisters are in, mashallah, good positions now. There, there isn't any one of us who's struggling. Uh, but yeah, uh, you get a lot, a lot put on, a lot of pressure um, at that at that age. I can I can certainly say. Yeah. Well, what what did you enjoy most about school uh, over there? Um, I I used to, funnily enough, I used to love English, and we had like debating competitions and essay competitions and all that. And I'd be just like, I want to go to England. And I, we, at that time, I didn't have any idea that we would be moving. Um, and um, I, I really enjoyed literature. I read Harry Potter books. I remember I was like, a, <laughs> I, was, I was obsessed. I had my friend, we would be with our magic wand. We'd be <laughs> doing spells. And, um, and, and yeah, I was... Um, I, I liked, ed- there was one point where I was like, okay, I need to focus on my studies and I developed an interest. So I liked reading. Um, IT was just coming in at that time. And I remember really liking my computer computer classes, which I was doing. Um, I was a bright child uh, in, in that sense, but also there was a hint of, um, I wanted that acceptance. So I want, I wanted to be known that okay, I'm I'm achieving. So, uh, give me some love, give me some positive regard because of that. Because I almost made my identity as okay. This is what who I am. I'm an academic person, you know, and that gave me um, meaning and value. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, yeah. So there's good parts of my childhood, the stuff which is difficult in my childhood was the um, gender, understanding my gender and understanding who am I as a boy? um, What do other boys like? And, you know, I had, while I was doing quite well academically, that was my defense mechanism in a sense for, the pain or the uh, incongruence, which I was kind of feeling when I was younger and thinking, well, I don't, I'm not really like one of the boys. I don't really like wrestling or I don't really like sports. I don't really like these things which I'm supposed to be liking. Um, When did that start? 
Um, I would say, I mean, the earliest memory I have is me being three and I'm, um, there's like, you know, like those dinky cars that you're playing with and you're kind of going with that. Uh, and I always had that, but because I had grown up in an environment where it was predominantly my mother and my sisters in, in the household, there was no male involvement. There wasn't anyone else. So I remember the first day of school, seeing the boys like pushing each other and, you know, being rough and stuff like that. And I'm like, whoa, what is this? I've not experienced something like this. They're so, you know, they're rough in what they're doing. And I was like, I just felt like, okay, how do I make friendship with these people? What's common? What are things which are common, which I talk about? And I really struggled. I remember my first nursery report, which I still have, says Ali is a very shy shy child and he's taking time to come you know to to open up um and at that age I couldn't even communicate what was happening to my parents because I didn't know what was happening you know I felt that I was different to the other boys um from nursery from a very very young age and it wasn't something I could just easily communicate to someone. Yeah. at that age. And obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm saying obviously, I mean, I don't know, but um, the opportunity for you to communicate wasn't there or were you too young to communicate this change? Um, I, I guess there's probably a lot of factors in there. Yes. I was probably too young. I didn't know what, how to express my emotions. I remember being times where I would, um, the school experience was too difficult. Either there'd be some bullying or something had happened and I would go in a room and I would just cry and then I'd be fine and then I would come back, but I wouldn't let anyone see I'm crying because I didn't want my parents at that time to worry for me, you know? Uh, my sisters probably recall me as being a very angry child because I was like, you know, kind of had this feeling of always being misunderstood. Um, and yeah, so I think I was, I, I was failing to communicate what I was actually experiencing, you know, and this is, this is before, you know, this, this is like five, five-year-old me, six-year-old me, just like thinking, oh, okay, I'm a bit of a loner. I don't, I don't really fit in. Yeah. So what did you fit in? Was there anything that you really fitted into at the time? Um, So, you know, and it's funny that my memories of childhood is, are very, very um, hazed as I don't remember. (laughs) And uh, I, I read this, I read this somewhere and which said, and I don't know if it's true, it says people who go through some trauma, the mind erases some of the memories because they're, they're just not memories the mind wants to keep, you know. Yeah, they are painful. I mean, you know, everything that's unconscious gets pushed away uh, if it's uncomfortable. Yeah. If it's comfortable, then, you know, the mind or the ego will, will accept it with, with open arms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, alhamdulillah, I didn't have extreme 
abuse or you know something like that which really stands out but when I look back and I, I can't remember and I it's funny because I went um, when I was getting married I went back to Pakistan I met with my childhood friend and he said to me Ali do you remember this happened and I was like oh yes this happened and I'd completely erased it and, and he said this happened and, and he said to me he remembers those things every day and I had, my brain had completely forgotten all these events, which, you know, because I guess there was shame in that, you know, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that happened. Or some, some were really good memories. But um, if you go back and you just ask me, what did I do, did connect with, I probably connected at one point with education and studies, because that was the only way I could get acceptance and love from other people. And that's why I was seeking. I was, I, you know, I was saying somehow someone loved me, somehow someone, you know, kind of recognized me. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I, I would say it was quite a confused kind of um, upbringing. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, most, most childhoods go through kind of this ups and downs. And, you know, because we're children, we're, we're, we're kind of, thirsty for whatever comes along mm, mm. um so it's it's very natural now your dad was a um is a doctor or you know at the time he was a doctor um mm. what what was he a family doctor or a surgeon or so he's a um specialized in internal medicine mm. um so he did his mrcp in the uk uh, my first two siblings were born in the UK and then he went back to Pakistan because he wanted us not to kind of lose our roots, lose our heritage kind of things. So my sister and I, um, they were born, we were born in Pakistan. Um, so he's, he's, um, he, he had, he, he was a professor at the um, medical college in, in, in Rawalpindi. And he had an evening clinic. Uh, and, a very you know, prestigious he, position in society. Very prestigious. Yes. Yeah. You can say, I mean, he came from a family which had absolutely nothing. So um, he got in uh, King Edward Medical College, which is a very prestigious college. He was very lucky. He, he came from poverty. He, a family of poverty and you know he worked really really hard um to and i remember when he he got he he, he describes to me when he he comes to england he didn't have absolutely anything he didn't have any money and he and he built from absolute zero um so so yeah so i think he had you know he he, he developed his career um uh, in I mean, he only retired a few years ago. So he had like 30, 40 year of medical career, um, which then allowed myself to, you know, to have the education and stuff, which he probably wanted for himself kind of thing, which he, he um, so yeah. Um, but the, the effect of that, which I realized now as an adult was because he had an evening clinic and he was a professor, he didn't have much time for the family and kind of upbringing, but um, it wasn't because he didn't want to. It was because of he was the sole earner. My my mum obviously was you know she didn't work. 
it's very common, you know, in Pakistani family to for have the father to be the the sole um, uh, bread, yeah. breadwinner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my dad's a professor in the university as well, and you know, with fathers like that, in who 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 come from poverty, I mean, my dad mm. is similar to that. Um, his father, my granddad, was a was a was a well known uh, religious imam and orator who didn't believe in science. My dad went against him and became a uh, professor of zoology, marine biology. Um, but, you know, with fathers like that, they expect you to succeed. Yeah. yeah. They expect you to get 100% because they did it and they came from mm. nothing. Now they are given us everything and yet we don't excel. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah you know, absolutely. that's totally unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. I I guess um, my my eldest brother he got more of that. You know, he got from dad saying because he he's a doctor as well. So um, he he got that push that you know go to US, do the USMLE, do the do the exams, and you know you'll have a good career. And he got that push. I I guess I was the youngest, so I was I didn't get that much of a push from my father to you know <laughs> was that I, because I, you were hiding behind your mother and, yeah. <laughs> and the sisters and not in the fiery line yeah yeah I mean I I, I mean uh, my mother had uh, an influence on all of us you know she would yeah. be like um you got 24 after 25 why didn't you get 25 after 25 you know <laughs> we would have we had that you were second in class how dare you why weren't you the first um, yeah. So we had a very, very high from from my mum's side. My mum would be very involved. She would know all of my friends' names. She would go yeah. to all of our parent-teacher meetings. She was very, very involved in our upbringing. Whereas my whereas my father, he he because of his work situation, he couldn't spend that time with us. And because I was probably the youngest, it wasn't you know. Um, it was like okay, there's there's another child kind of thing, you know, uh, which is which which is understandable now, um, but for me it wasn't. You know, you don't really think like that when you're young. You can't, um, you don't know why things are, you know. Um, so you really identified with the feminine, really identified. I identified with, with the feminine because it was all I knew. It was um, my dad would probably come in from evening clinic at about 10 30 p.m kind of thing you'd briefly see him and you know and then it would be uh and even in terms of who taught me to play my, I remember my mom teaching me badminton you know when I was and my mom was the type in her youth who would climb trees so she was quite tomboyish she was like you know uh like let's go and do things and you know she's very active and I uh, and because she was so involved and um, she, you would ask anything to mom and she would know it. I naturally saw my mom. I was closer to my mom because she had that interest in me and she could solve everything that, you know, all the, all the issues. And I was the youngest and I had two sisters and I I, I felt I'd almost always be compared. So it'd be like, you know, well, um, this sister has got this award. She's got this, you know. And my mum would obviously give 
positive regard she'd give love to you know when my sister would win a debating competition when they would come top and i looked at that and i was like mm, i want that i want some of that love um and i think that's why i i at one point i tried really really hard to then be academic so i could get that um and i did i my gcses are the uh the best in my siblings my academic record is now the best among all my siblings alhamdulillah you know but that was because psychologically i was trying to win acceptance i was trying to win that love yeah yeah i mean it turned into a habit after a bit you know the more you do something it turns into a habit and it becomes second nature I yeah mean, how it started you know there are many reasons but then yeah. you get into this habit and it just becomes automatic. It um, does. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm using this app where I'm learning some some French language and then they put you on a, um, a kind of a league and then they give you a point system. And because I'm I'm such a, a driven narcissist, you know, when I compete with my son, I, I always beat him because I'm just so driven. You know, nothing's <laughs> going to stop me from getting to the top. Not even your son. No, no. Like, no. And then he looks at it. He goes, "Oh, I, I give up." But that's because I was driven as well by my parents to to get to the top of the class, mm. not let anyone else defeat you. Otherwise, you got to contend with your mother. <laughs> you know, when yeah. mothers are angry. Yep. <laughs> it's a horrible sight. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I I know that all too well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you were you were in Pakistan until and until when? Until uh, 2002. Um, How old were you at the time? I was 12. All right, 12. Okay, so... This is um, just when puberty is hitting, yeah, yeah. So did you have any kind of sexual urges at the time, or was it before you left or after you left? What was what was the uh, sexual I, dynamics at the time? Yeah, I noticed, like, just when I was leaving Pakistan, I had, like, you know, kind of like, oh, okay, this I'm getting... Oh, you know, first time you get an erection, you're like, okay, what is this? You don't even understand what it is, you know, as a, as a child. And I remember having that, like, what is it? And going to my dad and saying, uh, what is this? And he's like, oh, it's fine. You know, what's happening is fine. Because I just didn't know what it was because it was, you know, ta- you know, some tactile movement. And then it's like, you know, we and obviously back then you have there there isn't like this education which is now you know which they give you so it was uh, it was um it was confusing and i remember um uh, that in when the attraction came i can remember more of the attraction came in in england and the reason for that was um I used to feel different in Pakistan from the rest of the boys, but now I'm in England and I'm in a completely different culture. The way I speak English, which I used to pride on, isn't how other people speak English here because their accent is different. You know, uh, when I look, look to people, it was like, okay, my skin color is different. You know, I would have so many things that I would say I'm, Again, going back to, you know, I'm different from everyone else, that kind of thinking. And funnily enough, my sexual attraction was never towards Pakistani men. It was then, at that point, it was towards white men. Because that was now, 
what was different. So the sexual attraction actually is coming or was coming from a place of they have this, I don't have it, I want that. It seems like these people, the people, white people seem seem to be better off than I am, right? Or, you know, this is where I want to go to or, or they're different. I'm tr- Again, I'm trying to assimilate, but I can't assimilate because I'm this uh, skinny um, 12-year-old Pakistani boy who finds himself in a... Um, uh, at that time, quite a rough school in Manchester, um, who's who's kind of trying trying to desperately fit in, um, and 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 yeah. So my my attractions at that time was like I remember going to Google and writing "men like men." What does that even mean? Because I didn't even understand what the in what the attraction was. Um, and obviously at that age, at 12, that was when, because of, remember Google images, <laughs> remember writing, you know, naughty things in there and the internet was so slow, waiting, waiting, waiting until the things would come in. So it was, it was a lack of knowledge of what I was experiencing and then using, because I was good in computers and, you know, going, going there and then searching and saying, oh, okay, so this is what it is. Um, yeah. So I would say it's 12, my um, sexual experience, or, you know, at least understanding what this attraction is. Did you travel with your dad? Did, did your tra- dad travel with you? Was it the whole family that, that came over to Manchester? The whole family came yeah. over. Yeah, yeah, my dad got a job. Um, he said, my dad decided that he wanted to retire in, in England, because he felt that now that I'm 12, that everyone's at least grown enough to uh, know the values, know the language, you know, know the culture, know the families. And then we decided, he decided to go back because obviously when he did his MRCP and he came in the Mm seventies. And as soon as my uh, mom, as soon as they got married, they went to UK and then they went back basically. But then he felt after 20 years, he felt, okay, I'm going to go back because I think my children are, you know, they've got what they needed from here. And he wanted to retire in England. So he made the decision to take all of us back to, hmm. um, to England. At that point. And yeah. uh, I hope you don't mind me asking this, but, but what, what are his central values that, that, that he wanted you to, to learn and understand by living in Pakistan? So he saw in UK, he kind of saw like um, people don't have um, the respect for family, you know, family values and um, like just immorality and not, you know, like um, uh, from an, you know, from an Islamic perspective, just having that immorality, which was there and, and he wanted um for us to you know not lose that and again that comes from the sayyid religious you know kind of back throw of it um i mean even if we see it from a secular lens it's it's good because 
I think part of it was also root space. So you're not forgetting where you're coming from. You're, you're I don't know if proud is the word, but at least you're uh, recognizing and you're affirming where, where your roots are. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I mean, all societies have hierarchical structures. So he wanted you to give you a good basis in terms of your own, let's say, self worth or self esteem to know that your hierarchical structure is 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 actually very strong and high in mm. these societies, and that allows you to to build in in newer societies where you pretty much start from the bottom and have to work your way up. And this yeah. is something that your father's done in the past. And demonstrated um yeah and also when you are at the top i mean you know this is the case when i go to iraq you know when 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 i go to the iraq i'm at the top of the the pyramid and Mm -hmm. you know okay it's nice i guess um but then you can't be yourself because you have to act within that you know the top of the pyramid you know it's be like the queen you know the queen can't Mm -hmm. be herself you know, there yeah. are norms and there are ways of doing things and etiquettes, which you can't break. Um, mm. So it does have consequences and it does have drawbacks. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there is that, uh, like we mentioned before, that, okay, we're Sayyid, so you can't, you can't be doing some of the things, you know. And in Pakistan, especially, and I think in Muslim culture as well, the family honor is so high you know like um that um in muslim societies and i think it's not i I don't think it's just a pakistani culture i think in generally in muslim societies if you're if someone just even finds out that one of your children has a mental health issue or anything they're like oh you know people people like no we don't want to share that because our family honor is going to go down you know uh, my, I remember my, um, my eldest sister, she's down syndrome. Right. And in Pakistan, my sisters would not tell other people that, oh, we have a down syndrome sister, even though there's nothing, you know, like now with the Western upbringing, we think that's absolutely preposterous what we were thinking at that time. But it, it's almost like the family honor kind of thing, uh, you know, is um, it's at a ridiculous level where you can't say anything. So um, you know, in Pakistan, you have you have the opposite problem of really um, uh, families which are really really broken, but they can't say anything because it will. They fear their honor would drop from that society kind of thing um and and that was that was a big reason why i didn't want uh people to know that i was struggling with say the attractions because if i if i thought okay i don't really care what happens to me but i cared for what would happen to uh my family you know if my family just suddenly get how could you raise someone who had same-sex attractions? You know, how how could you let someone deviate in that sense? And that's what I feared. And I didn't want that for my family to have that, you know, um, 
and I think that that was a big reason why I kept it. I didn't tell anyone for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, going back to the, um, you know, the broken family issues, you know, back home, whether it's in Pakistan or 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 Iraq, and you know, this way of doing things gets perpetuated and passed down to the next generations. So, you know, it is something that I think needs to be broken or or um, changed at least, um, yeah. you know, yeah. for the next generations. Otherwise, this, this um, brokenness um, and this distress continues. So you had this, you know, it's all Google's fault, of course, <laughs> you know, being, a, <laughs> being an IT expert. Um, but what was it in white men that you wanted from them? You know, what what is it from them that, that you wanted that you weren't it, getting? I remember. And, you know, why uh, not white women? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's a really good question. Um, I remember in, because I was really academic and I, I excelled everything. The only thing I couldn't excel was PE class right it was crap absolute crap for sports and i saw this um w- one of um the boys he was white blonde eyes you know uh sorry uh blue eyes blonde blonde hair and he he would just do everything really well and he would get positive regard from the teacher and i kind of looked at him and i say why can't i be like that you know um and it's interesting because my attraction now goes towards blonde eye, blue eyed people because I'm transferring that across. Yeah. Um, and and generally in, in Pakistan, you grow up people, you know, I remember you had this silly, fair and lovely, which is like a skin whitening cream that people would put. So they, they'd appear whiter. You know, there's this whole um uh we've been ruled by the brits obviously so we, we we had that you know kind of the white skin is better kind of thing uh why why female why not male uh when i was growing up uh the female was so familiar you know so when when kids go through that time where they're being really shy around you know the opposite sex i was like why are you being shy there's no you know there's there isn't anything but with the guys when i used to sit with them i was like you're just mysterious because i don't understand like why you like football why you like these things because these things are boring to me you know the the type of conversations they would have uh i i just couldn't really involve myself in them i was like you know i was just thinking why do they like these things so the what was mysterious to me or what, what I perceive myself to be different from, that's when at puberty that becomes sexualized because I could sit with women all day and speak and I, you know, it was, it was familiar. It was a very familiar. Whereas with men or with boys, I would really not feel comfortable in my skin and I would feel, um, I would feel that, you know, either I'd be judged or I wouldn't be able to sustain the conversation, partly because I didn't have many male friends, you know, when I was I was growing up. And most of my life, 
was quite sheltered in my family home. You know, like I said, our school day was so long, we'd go back, we couldn't even go to uh, birthday parties because they were in, they were in Islamabad, we were in Rawalpindi, we were in two different cities, so we couldn't even travel. So it was a very kind of sheltered upbringing. And it was it was a very feminine dominated upbringing. Um, so when I look back at it, I'm like, I didn't have, uh, and it wasn't anyone's fault as such, but it is just, it was just the fact that there wasn't any um, masculine involvement, which I looked up to, I didn't really identify with a mentor. I didn't like any male teacher, you know, kind of like who I would see as a mentor, I would say, Oh, I, I really want to be this, like this guy. Um, even in my religious thinking, I would, I would see Sayyida Fatima, for example, I would connect with her more than Imam Ali, for example, again, this whole paradigm of feminine strength, Sayyida Zainab, for example, to be uh, to have gone more than um, Imam Sajjad, for example, you know. Uh, so you would, I would always have this paradigm of uh, the female being stronger because that was how my upbringing was, you know, that were, that, or at least that was my perception of the world at that time, yeah. And And then when did you get did did you get the uh, the courage to have your first uh, relationship? Uh, how how long did it take you to sort of first relationship, as in like same sex relationship, same sex relationship? Yeah. Um, um, I I never like maybe like on the apps, yeah. like speaking to someone or yeah. stuff like that. I never conducted a relationship like I never like had a boyfriend or anything like that you know right. um I was lucky in that sense that you know my um my same-sex attractions usually were mental you know it was either pornography or at times the apps I wouldn't really meet people or if I'd met if I'd gone and I met people it would never turn to a relationship you know did something uh, stop you from going there? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I remember reading the traditions, you know, and the traditions are very, very strong, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, um, I remember having a dream when I was seven. And I had this dream in which um, there's these very big clay pieces and the sky is like dark it's like a um you know like a really scary red dark um and these pe- these pieces of marble are falling on particular people right and i still remember this dream and um i'm really scared and you know i can hear screams in the background and then these pieces of clay or marble, they're, they're designated for certain people. And I'm seeing this in the dream. And then I'm in the dream, I'm going back and I'm thinking, well, it's going to bring me solace. And I'm only seven at that time. And I'm opening up and I'm thinking, what well, is going to bring me solace. So I'm, so I'm saying God's going to bring me solace. 
So I'm, and, and in and the dream, I'm trying to open the Quran, but the Quran's blank and I can't see anything in the Quran. So when I looked at that later on in terms of uh, the story, the story of Lut and then the destruction and then what's happening, I was like, oh, okay, God's giving me that message very early on. Be steady, be steady in what you're, what you're doing. I had dreams where I would um, have the imam or people coming and saying, don't do it. Don't go there. Don't do it. So they knew I, I already had that connection where God was kind of saying, preparing. I, I, at seven, I didn't even know what it was, you know. I, I, at seven, I didn't even have the same-sex attractions, but I remembered that dream. So I, I knew God was kind of saying, don't cross that boundary as such. Um, so in that sense, I was quite lucky that it didn't turn into a relationship. The only first relationship I had was when I started looking for marriage after doing the work. And then uh, it's even harder because you're like, I'm looking and I have same-sex attractions, right? <laughs> so it's even, it's even harder when you're going that. But I didn't, um, I may have had crushes or, you know, like that growing up, but I didn't, didn't really have a relationship. And, and when did you start doing the work? And, and tell us more about the work. So it was... Um, I'd, uh, I was 20, 22 at the time, and I, um, at the time I was uh, studying, I was in university, I was doing my placement, and I was learning to drive uh, as well, and I was on my own, and this is like the first year where I'm on my own, doing all of these things, learning to drive in Cheltenham, and you know, like away from family, and there was a lot going on, and I'm thinking, lots of blonde blue-eyed uh big stocky muscular men everywhere come and and save me yeah um (laughs) and i was like thinking oh my god i need support i need support in this right and i need to tell someone because i'm now 22 i'm heading to that stage and it was one driving lesson where the driving instructor just said to me, Ali, I just don't know what's happening in your head, but anything which I'm telling you isn't going through. And then when I realized that I needed um, help, you know, I, I, I needed to go to someone. And the first person that I told um, after 11 years or so, um, 10 or 11 years was, a university counselor and I couldn't even um, put it on the you know they you signed a form and I just said to be discussed I just I didn't even put the reason because in case someone finds out exactly (laughs) in case some silly administrator finds out who wasn't supposed to find out that and you know being in the Shia community once you know once you open your mouth the whole community finds out (laughs) absolutely yeah so I remember the first counseling session and being there and saying, and they say, so what's brought you here? And it took me, I was like, uh, 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 you know, I couldn't say, I couldn't say the words. I, I like men. I couldn't say it because there was so much shame. 
there was years and years of shame in that statement and I couldn't say it. And when I finally said it, and then she said, how do you feel now? And I was like, I was just like, you know, thinking, oh, the world hasn't collapsed, basically. I'm still here. Um, and, and that was that point where I was, and then she said, what do you want to be doing? You know, I was quite lucky this person was a person-centered counselor. If, it, if, they, if they had been like some directive counselor, they would have gone in and said, embrace it or, you know, and I, I had those experiences later on, which were, which were quite damaging. Um, but that was the point where I was like, oh, so I have it and I need to accept it and I need to actually start doing you know, work on it. And uh, then when I researched, uh, I, you know, I got hold of the only organization which does work with, uh, regardless of faith background, which is Brothers Rogers, people can change at that time. And funnily enough, their next weekend was, uh, it said Southwest England and I was in Bristol at that time and I was like could this be a bigger sign and this was a US organization which would never come to the UK and the the weekend which I went was actually their last ever UK weekend so again you know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala coming in aligning uh, that and when I went on to the weekend which was in 2013 um, I then could finally see there were people who were who had you know who were of faith they, they didn't have shame about the same-sex attractions and they had reached a point where their faith was congruent their values and beliefs were congruent with their experience of sexuality and I was like "Ooh, I want that I want you know that struggle which is happening in me where my where one side of me is saying one thing and the other side is saying something else I can see people who've reached a level of uh, peace with that, and and that's 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 where I want uh, want to get to. Um, and once I could see people who had actually, you know, done it, and it, it was it was then that I was like, okay, I know what I'm doing now, and. Yeah, and I'd read the books, I'd read Nicolosi, I'd read different books, and it was like, this is me, you know, I'd read the books and I'd be crying, it was almost like reading the Quran, because it was like, this is Haq, this is me, this is what's happening, um, and yeah, and then that's, that's kind of the 22, 23 is kind of the ages where I then started the work and, you know, started coming towards um, support groups, counseling and things like that, yeah. What was the most effective way of, of change for you? Um, good question. It was the support groups. It was the weekly check-in. How am I doing? What's happening? Let's go, you know. And I would hear from uh, people and I'd connect with their stories, I'd reflect back. Um, some days I didn't want to speak much, some days I really wanted to speak, and that group dynamic, I had it, I kept it for like, I think three, four years I was in the group, in the support group, and that really, really helped me have that check-in. 
Um, so yeah. I and this was, was faith-based, not a Muslim support. This group. was yeah. So this was this was not a Muslim group. This was um, just uh, individuals who are um, working on this on this similar goal. So it, it had people which actually had some of them didn't have any faith. So mm. yeah, yeah. But they had issues around sexuality. They had issues around sexuality, which they were, yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you define sexuality? Um, sexuality, I would define it on two levels. So one is the romantic level, yeah? So the romantic as in um, the affectionate level, as in the friendship type or the... Um, uh, the supportive, you know, uh, friendship and that kind of energy. And I think the other energy, uh, apart from this romantic type of soft energy, is then the uh, the sexual energy, which is more, um, you know, which is more like passionate or what we, you know, the Quran we would say shahwa, we would say lust, kind of lust-based mm-hmm. kind of energy. And I think both of those would would probably come into um, sexuality. So when, I, when we speak to clients, I, 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 I often say, is this connection coming from a physical, a very physical place, or is it coming from a needs and emotional needs place? Sometimes it's different for different people. So I would say it'd be a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, these narratives can sometimes be, uh, um, what's the word, kidnapped by by the bigger narrative or the bigger stories, which is the media and and, 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 and politics and society. And that yeah. can feed as a certain type of uh, story, which we take as for granted. Um, now, you know, there is a massive movement of uh, LGBTQ plus mm. um which is a very big political uh, movement yeah. worldwide particularly in the west and it is sort of slowly um petering into the you know into the middle east and and uh, the near east and um everywhere around the world mm. now that must mm. have affected you you know as as you were going through your um development in in your teens and and adolescence and early adulthood yeah absolutely i mean um in in terms of the lgbt community what we say is i i can share the pain that they're going through and i you know and the movements because i i can totally identify having the same journeys as a lot of them you know but my um what i wanted to do was uh slightly different so i didn't i didn't feel I didn't need Islam to tell me that these feelings which I'm getting at are, in my experience, are coming from a place of shame or coming from a place of um, I'm not, uh, you know, identifying. I knew from a very young age that if someone said, okay, in Islam, you can have a same-sex relationship and you can live like that, I know I wouldn't be able to live with a man because... Again, when we talked about the sexuality, they, 
he, he may fulfill my sexual need, but he can't fulfill my emotional need because my emotional need is still, for me, feels better with a, with a woman and, and it always did, right? But I still had the physical need, which was, you know, the sexual need, which was, which was playing. So I could see, okay, this is coming from a place of um, physical need, a lustful need, and it's not coming from a place of, no, I actually feel more comfortable with a man, you know. And this is my experience, you know, and I can only speak for myself. Um, so I, I was, you know, I was saying, okay, what about people who want to explore their sexuality um, with their faith and maybe see potential for um, uh, a relationship with a woman, you know, again, I don't, I don't use these words of uh, labels of straight, I don't call myself straight, I think it's a label. I, I don't identify with it. Um, in Islam, there is no such thing as straight. Islam doesn't talk about, you know, even these concepts of hetero-homosexual are 1900-based. They're not really based before that. So the label doesn't really mean anything for me. What means to me is, can I live a life according to my beliefs and values, according to my values, not inherited values from people. I, I sincerely believe even if I didn't have my faith based, I would still be in conflict with my same-sex attractions because they just didn't, they were coming from a place of me being incongruent with my gender um, and not really coming because I'm seeking acceptance from my family or the community, yeah. So when the LGBT come in, I, I can empathize with them because I'm, I'm in a very similar situation to them, you know. So, um, so even in strong support, we say we're not anti-LGBT at all because that's their truth and that's what they're living. But what we're saying is if you're people like us who actually feel that they would like to explore the possibility of marriage, possibility of um, aligning their faith values with their sexuality in the terms of Islam and so on, then here's a space for you. Here's a safe space for you, for, for you to. And that was what's, what was missing. And that's what frustrated me from the community. Uh, it was the the thing that frustrated me was the lie that sexuality is fixed. That was something which frustrated me that it's, it was a fixed thing. It wouldn't change for anyone. You know, you're, you're, you're either straight, you're gay, and there is nothing in between, you know. There was that type of ideology, um, which when I went to a counselor, another counselor, and uh, she was, uh, you, you'd like this, Aida. She was CBT. She was CBT based. Hey, hey, um, hey, hey. Don't make me into <laughs> some kind of, wait, 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 wait. I have lots of very nice uh, CBT mates. We're good mates. You know, <laughs> chill. <laughs> um, chill, and, mate, and chill. She said to me, you've got this mantra going in your head. She actually said that. You've got this mantra that, uh, you're okay and uh, you know 
why don't you just embrace it? Why don't you be gay? Have, she said, have you tried pink therapy? And I was like, are you seriously telling me to try pink therapy? You know, and what's I, pink you know, therapy? Pink therapy is, uh, you know, um, gay affirmative uh, therapy, which kind of goes, you okay, let's accept, accept this, accept who you are. And I would say it's, it's a very directive form of therapy because it tells you who you are, you know. It's, it's very directive in that. It's saying, no, you're not, you're, you're, you're gay. You're, you know, you're, uh, you'll be happier with a man. And that's it, you know. Um, and it doesn't leave... Does that happen? Is, is, is there sort of groups and organizations and, and, and people that do gay therapy? Sorry, I meant uh, pink therapy. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you can look it up. Pink therapy is an actual thing. Right. Gay affirmative therapy is an actual form of therapy. Um, and it's actually, not only is it done, it is something which is recommended. So it's the recommended form. So if, if you go into BACP, if you go into there, they will argue sexuality. We make the assumption that sexuality is fixed. Mm. It cannot be changed. And any, any person who kind of does this work, you know, kind of is, is barking up the wrong tree. And that stance is what frustrates me because my experience was different, you know, and not my experience is experience of so many people I know. I mean, there's a B in the LGBT. It says bisexual. It says there's fluidity, you know, and there's been so many, there's been works of Lisa Diamond. There's been works of so many other people who show the sexual fluidity, which is in humans. Um, so then to take a stance, which is very rigid, um, and, and just say you're, you're either one or the other and you can't, you know, um, you have to choose uh, is that's what annoyed me from, you know, from, uh, from the community. And it wasn't, so even when, uh, if you've got some gay activists and again, these are gay activists, which are a bit like, you know, like in Islam, we have crazy activists who are yeah, doing yeah, yeah. crazy something. she is crazy sunnies crazy she is yeah so crazy lgbt activists who say no any type of um talk which allows people to move from um homosexuality to heterosexuality is evil it's harmful it's painful it's uh you know it, it's discriminatory yet when the opposite is happening, which is, is happening, gay affirmative therapy, no one says anything. No one bites, you know, no one bats an eyelid. And I think there's the hypocrisy in the system at, at present, which I think if you would speak to most counselors and psychotherapists who don't, uh, you know, who, who, are, who aren't afraid to be politically correct, they will say, no, this is wrong because it impacts the self-determination of the client and I think that's my issue and that's the thing which I find annoying it isn't so much the LGBT community it's the fact that um, a premise is made where people like myself can't access help uh, in in the present uh, you know in, in the present structure and that's the reason why I felt very strong that I had to uh, 
I had to make a stance and create the organization because um, I personally know um, since, since we started Strong Support, I've had numerous, numerous calls from people who have been negatively harmed by counselors telling them who they are, they're gay and they need to accept it. And that's really damaging to, you know, to, to people who are thinking, well, I don't fit in that identity. I don't take that myself. Well, I'm not shamed about my same-sex attractions. I'm not saying that I don't experience them, but please don't label me. Please don't label me to something which I'm not, you know. And I think that's, that's basically the premise where, um, which, which we're trying to hopefully move on the conversation to say, yes, people may experience same-sex attraction, but some of us may choose to live uh, in a way which is more congruent with our faith beliefs and system, whether that's celibacy, whether that's marriage, mm. whether that's, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, there needs to be respect for that diversity. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we definitely need to allow for change. I mean, even I mean, I'm wearing a Darth Vader T-shirt right now. And, you know, even <laughs> this man changed several times, you know. Yes, yes. And he's become iconic because of his change, because of his uh, stances and changes in uh, in life. Yes, yeah, goes through between the good and evil side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and and what was the um, what was the uh, the backlash, the reaction of the of the Muslim community to uh, to you and your work? You know, I've been um, from um, I've been quite lucky. Most of the people have have uh, have said that it's really good, you know. Um, for, on an individual level, people have said this must have taken a lot of courage. Thank you for doing it. A lot of people came up to me saying thank you for raising the voice. Yeah. Um, the difficulty which I have is more in terms of um, institutions, right? So um, I, I I remember. Um, being invited for a talk which wasn't on strong support something was completely different and I got explicitly asked from the organization not to mention strong support even though I wasn't going to do so you know um, and I've had uh, you know I've, I've approached um, psychotherapists Muslim psychotherapists say would you come in do a talk do something blank. No one wants to touch the topic. You know, no one wants to come forward. No one wants to say anything. Why? Everyone's scared. Everyone's very, very scared. What are scared. they scared of? Um, I guess they're scared that they, they would upset or they would lose um, their uh, professional membership because at, at the moment it is, you know, um, very, very, if you speak anything which is slightly seems to be away from the current narrative, the current LGBT narrative, then you're a convert, you're what do you call it, a conversion therapist? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or they'll, you know, they'll tar you with something. Um, and, and that is, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's the fear. The fear is that you would lose 
whatever professional membership you are, you would lose that because you're having that slightly different position, um, you know, slightly different worldview on things. Um, and and I, think, I think that's why no one wants to touch the topic. No one wants to come forward. Um, I'm the only public um, figure, at least English speaking figure, which I know has come out as same-sex attracted, but not acting upon it I, in the Muslim community. I'm yet to find, I hope more people come out because there is no, the part, part why I came public is saying, look, there isn't any shame in having the same-sex attraction. It's, it's a reality. Why should we be shamed about something which is a reality? You know, why are we living in this shame? I'm encouraging people to come out in that sense, you know. Uh, but the, the community is so far behind that just having the discussion on sexuality or these issues is, is, is difficult, let alone someone coming up and saying, oh, this actually happened to me. You know, I've been in loads of these Muslim gatherings and it's very hard for a Muslim to come up and say, I suffered from depression. And as soon as someone says, I suffered from depression, it all goes very silent, you know? And depression is common. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's such a common thing. So this, the biggest thing, which is I've experienced by doing this work is the extent of shame which is present in the Muslim community is unimaginable. It is absolutely unimaginable. So even in the support groups, which I'm doing, people would be using pseudonyms, you know, mm -hmm. some of the support groups, they won't show the face, even though it's a contract, we have a contract, there's confidentiality, you know, all the other people are in the same boat. Still, they, it takes a long time for a lot of, um, you know, the, uh, the clients that we support to say in, in these groups to turn the video on, use the real name because there's so much shame around this issue. Um, so, yeah. So I think as a community, we're very, very behind um, on, uh, on allowing these people, allow these people to come into mosques, allow these people to engage um and and have that and yeah um yeah i can see you're smiling <laughs> yeah i mean you know faith is is welcoming faith is embracing faith is allowing that's what faith mm. is about yeah it's got no exclusivity whatsoever mm. Mm. and it really gets on my tits when people become very exclusivistic yeah definitely it really <laughs> annoys me yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I could have a right old rant, but you know, I'll be coming on your organization and I'm I'm gonna have a right old rant for your Inshallah, yes, have that you know. rant. We welcome it. <laughs> <laughs> You'll embrace my rants. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I feel it. And we had um uh, one of my friends, Wahid Jensen, he does he has a blog, um, he has a podcast on this. And I invited him on the show. And this is the thing, exact same thing. He said, the person who come, has to come on the member needs to be some, this angel, perfect angel, which is- We don't want him or her. Life. We don't want angels. 
<laughs> Buckham, as they say. Well, you know, yeah. I guess you, you know, that's not really attraction anymore. Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's just like, Astaghfirullah, she can't go uh, on the member. Her hijab is improper, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This type of hypocrisy, which basically says, oh, if, if, they're, if they're going on the podium, they have to be um, almost like in the gay community, you have to have a six pack. In, really? in the Muslim community, yeah. So yeah. you have this image conscious, yeah. very judgmental LGBT, you know, kind of where we have this, okay, you need to be of a certain image to, yeah. you know, gloss the page of a, a, mag- a gay magazine, LGBT magazine. It's a similar in our faith. Oh, you need to have the best hijab and the best... Yeah. Um, Sayyid, uh, Sayyida, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, um, and it's the same. It's there, there's, there's this perception of this is what good looks like. And if yeah. you're anything else apart from this very small square box, then, you know, uh, then sorry, we can't invite you or yeah. you, you, you can't come in. And, and that really frustrates me because it negates the diversity of the human experience and it negates the, um, you know, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, and we've created you from different tribes and different races that you may know each other, not to say I'm better than you, you know, or my tribe's better than your tribe, you know? Um, So yeah, so that, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm (laughs) gonna, I won't rant on, as you said. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's fine to rant on. And, and psychologically speaking, any ideal, if you have an ideal, you'll never get there. You'll, you'll break down, you'll be frustrated, your expectation will be shattered at any ideal, no matter what it is. Mm. So, you know, the, the ideal is there to, to sort of uh, fall away from. Um, so it's a losing battle with 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 any idealistic uh, um, idea, so to speak. Mm. It's like when there. you've got someone who's unreachable, you know. And that's why, you know, as Muslims, we we will connect with brokenness. Yeah, you know, it's closer like, to us. This is closer. Yeah. The ideal you'll never get there. And the higher ideal, the worse it gets for you as a as a human being in this living experience. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Idealistically speaking, you're you're on a loser. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, you know every little step is closer to the goal, so to speak. So. You know, with, with with podcasts like the you know this, and you, you speaking mm. to more diverse individuals, um, you know the message gets across that bit uh, closer. Um, yeah. I mean, I saw you on a on a Muslim podcast, which which went out last year. Yeah. Um, and then we connected, and then you told me that we met many years ago. Yeah. Which was interesting. Um, yeah. I can't remember what we talked about, but it must have been fascinating because because he instantly remembered me. Uh, yeah, I remember you come in and I was like, "Oh, he's an uh, ophthalmologist." I said, I've never never met ophthalmologist. He's not blue eyed, but he is a bit blonde. You know, <laughs> I may have had a wig at the time. 
<laughs> yeah, I remember, and I was like, uh, I remember you being very t- um, uh, talkative and you know, kind of very like um, relaxed, and um, uh, and I was like, okay, that's good, and yeah, the it was it actually it was round it was Rajab it was right. near twenty second Rajab at that time, so. Um, so it was actually, yeah, it was actually very, very similar time from, from now. It was a few years ago, but yeah, you know, it was, it was a small world. Yeah. Yeah. Small world. Definitely. And, and, um, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to talk for another hour with you and, and, uh, I'm sure the listeners are fascinated by this whole sort of dynamic of culture and religion and sexuality mm-hmm. and, and attraction. And, you know, it is a very fascinating story and it's outside, you know, the current political, Mm-hmm. Um, politically correct narrative, which we're fed yeah. on a daily basis, and 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 people are, are hounded for having a personal view about something that's just ubiquitous with with life, which is sexuality. You know, sexuality mm. is such a personal thing. You know, it's not yeah. another box uh, for you to be put into. And um, I read somewhere that you know everything is commercialized, and and this is another form of commercial commercialization commercial commercialization of sexuality and i think mm-hmm. the only thing that hasn't been commercialized yet is uh, dreams but uh, you know soon soon you know if you have a nightmare they'll have a they'll have a tablet for you that's very interesting yeah yeah obviously yeah. me saying this because you know i love to analyze dreams and what have you so i am biased from that kind of sense but you know if you have bad dreams you go and see a person that can take it away with with a tablet yeah well, well we we have a lot of stories and uh of dream interpretation in in islam we have a lot of that yeah and it's quite Quran. funny because on the pulpit they say you know dreams are not to be considered as uh, as you know like um uh haq or a kind of way of deriving jurisprudence uh edicts that's crazy yeah yeah because yeah. there's there's loads of example in the Quran where prophets have been given dreams. So yeah, I, I mean even in the Quran, but you know they're prophets. You're not. Da, da, da. But you know, I mean, as a you know as a psychoanalyst, you know dreams are are, are our, yeah. our gemstones. You know, our you know the thing that really gets us excited and and turned on. Really, mm. it really mm. turns Absolutely. me on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No dreams. Yeah. Very very deep. Uh, I get questions from people saying, um, you know, we're having this, uh, actually, it's very uh, useful in, uh, in, you know, the session saying, I'm having this dream. And I always ask people, what was the emotion? What was the underlying emotion that was your feeling? Because the data is not important, but it's how you were, you know, made felt. And I had, I remember when I was doing my work, I was having loads of dreams, with my history coming back and traumatic memories coming back, my brain trying to dump stuff back. Mm. So yeah, no, um, so much, so much to be explored in the unconscious. Yeah, 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 uh, de- de- definitely. You know, you know, I'm I'm salivating right now just just hearing <laughs> the the words of the unconscious. Uh, gets really excited. Um, where would you like to see yourself, say, in five years' time? very good question um well at present i am um i'm training 
uh, in counseling. I'd never, you know, I work in IT, I work in software, never kind of uh, imagined I'd be treading down this <laughs> psycho. Mate, surgeon becomes psycho kind of person. I don't know. <laughs> Who would yeah. have thought it? Narcissistic exactly. surgeon becomes a touchy-feely, psycho-y. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't think most people come, <laughs> come to the profession, you know, I want to grow up and be a, a psychoanalyst. You know, yeah. I don't think we, we, we kind of, we have that. Um, but yeah, in five years, I, I hope that, you know, kind of I've, I've set up um, strong support in a sense that we're reaching more people, where maybe having um, more at the moment, everything's online. I'd like to be doing something physically uh, after COVID, you know, kind of all this. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, just growing. I'm, I'm growing. I'm not, I, I'm not a finished product by any means. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. Um, so, so yeah, I guess I uh, I still have work, you know, to do, and it's so meaningful. This type of work, is so 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 meaningful towards you know to me because I spent my life hiding a part of me, you know, and being ashamed of it. And now, you know, and like you said, that interview of going public with it is is a very still very big change for me um and it's just seeing where that goes and i really feel that i'm authentic and i'm congruent you know um i think the best thing for me is my wife you know my wife's my support she knows everything everything you know if i even if i'm going back to the ssa thing thinking oh that's that's a good looking guy you know like i'll share that you know because she's like a friend and you know i've alhamdulillah i've you know, it shows it's possible if I, you know, so many people and there might be people listening, you know, who are thinking, um, I can't share that or I can't do that. And I've just learned that by being really, really vulnerable, really, really authentic and sharing, that has, that's actually set me freer because I'm, I'm being authentic and I'm not living a lie, you know. And I'm not pleasing people to say, oh, accept me and accept this. Mate, you're years ahead of me. I can't say, you know, my wife's sitting next to me. Oh, she looks beautiful. She looks nice. (laughs) (laughs) I'd get the fucking chop, mate. Lucky bastard. Yeah. I guess I guess it's probably different for me because I had to tell the world. So it was like, "Mm, I did ask her before telling. I said, are you okay with me going with this? And she was supportive. So, Yeah. yeah. But yeah yeah <laughs> it's been a great pleasure ali it's uh so nice to to um to hear you and uh it's it, it's refreshing it's it's good that, that that we're that we can talk about these things you know the whole concept around, and it's so important it's you know sex and sexuality is 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 actually central to our living in this in this world you know you mm. know it's not a, a side issue it's actually a main issue Mm-hmm. no absolutely and thank you thank you for being brave <laughs> for for having me having discussed discussed this topic i i i would say i was like okay i'm going to these 
you know, places. I'm saying, does anyone want to talk about this? Anyone? And, and I see Heather's email come up and I'm like, subhanAllah, you know, actually someone, someone's brought it and someone wants this discussion. So may Allah bless your uh, efforts, the surgical podcast and what you're doing and, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know. I'm, uh, I mean, it's fun for me. I mean, I was sitting with a, with a relative and I was you know, discussing you. And the first thing they said is, why are you giving him a platform? That was the first thing that they said. Mm-hmm. So I just uh, stayed quiet because, you know, there's no point creating conflict. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because, you it, know, it was like a, a birthday party and things like that. So anyway, that's life. It's slow, slow progress, but, you know, uh, we have to do what, what we have to do. So, yeah. no, honestly, yeah. you know, may Allah bless you in uh, what you're doing and, you know, you're staying true to what, you know, your your own faith and values are and not not giving a damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, um, you know, uh, next year we can do another session, you know, another podcast episode and you can tell us how, um strong support has has grown over the year yeah no but before that uh i look forward to you on uh that our webinar uh, yeah i mean it'll be full of juices lots of <laughs> lots of spunk lots of semen lots of uh fluids that's what we want lots yeah, of yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> you know bring br- but you know bring your own lubrication with you yeah <laughs> everyone brings their own lubrication that sounds fantastic. I'm sure you've already triggered a lot of interest. <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? Okay, my friend, you take care of yourself. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay.